Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Hard to believe tomorrow is Easter, and I hope that all of you will have a good upcoming Easter holiday. Well, here I am again discussing with you all, my fellow listeners, Brilliant Beacons, A History of the American Lighthouse. You know, here we are now into uh, episode 10 of Brilliant Beacons, and you know, we've covered a lot. And yet there's a lot more to discuss. So, I'm wondering what many of you all are thinking right now. What could we be discussing about tonight that has not already been discussed? Well, I can answer that for you. In this episode, we're going to discuss um, what is known as from board to service. So, in other words, could this be something that's uh, transitional? In other words... Could we be seeing the Lighthouse Board be in existence still, but under a new name? After all, you know, oftentimes we hear a board operating under a certain name, but yet over time, as time itself changes and the needs of um, of structures that the board itself overseas change, like in this case, the Lighthouse Board overseeing all Lighthouse affairs. As time progresses, then, you know, sometimes it's not always a bad idea to have a board agency itself operate under a new name. So, let's uh, fasten our seatbelts and get prepared for a, um upcoming um episode that is going to be worth uh, learning just like the other nine episodes have been so far in Brilliant Beacons. So our first uh, lead-off question for this um, podcast episode will be the following. For many years, lighthouses had relied upon blasting cannons, which dated back to uh, the early 18th century, to shooting off guns as a means of warning ships regarding foggy weather. By the early 1900s, in other words, by the start of the 20th century, what new safety advances came into play? Anybody want to take a guess? How about, for starters, um, sirens? And then how about um, hot air? What about, believe it or not, trumpets powered by steam to bells with automatic strikers regulated by falling weights which warned mariners that land and possible danger was nearby. I like the siren one because for one it's loud and two you can hear it from a from a reasonable distance and the siren itself gives you enough of a warning to realize that hey danger might be somewhere nearby, so it would be best not to um, keep moving the ship at full speed, because if it keeps going at full speed, and by the time we slow down, we could um, hit a shoal from underground, or we could, um, you know, we could run aground. In other words, you know, hitting a reef, um, in this case being, you know, the equivalent of a shoal. Uh, so the bottom line is the siren is very essential for um, 
you know, for warning of of what lies ahead. Not just so much, you know, what could lie ahead, but obviously for foggy weather. Because, you know, fog itself is very, um, it could be scary. It could be tricky. And thank heavens, uh, like, for example, I know this very well when driving on Interstate 64 going to the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia, where I live, uh, on Afton Mountain, there are uh, fog lights on the side of the road. So, in other words, if it gets foggy, which it does on that stretch of road, you have lights that will guide you and will also help you reduce your speed and distance because if you drive very fast, for all you know, you could be hitting a truck in front of you and you never know what cargo the truck itself could be carrying. How do I know this? Because I've seen plenty of trucks on Afton Mountain, um, this, on 64 on the Afton Mountain road stretch, carrying uh, wood. And we're not just talking ordinary pieces of firewood that you put in your fireplace. We're talking huge logs, folks. So, you know, it's one thing to drive in the fog, but if you're not careful and you go fast, you could be setting yourself up for disaster. Here's a uh, two-part question right here. Part one, were there lighthouses stationed in isolated areas throughout the United States? And part two to this question is the following. What did, light, what did the lighthouse board itself do to help those keepers who manned remote lighthouses? So for part one, the answer is an obvious yes. There were lighthouses stationed in isolated areas throughout the United States. And two, the lighthouse board itself in 1876. Why should 1876 be an important year? Well, for starters, that's the centennial. It's the United States' centennial. We are, we're celebrating, in a sense, our 100th um, anniversary or birthday as a country. We're still in the Reconstruction era. However, it will end a year later in 1877. I don't know how much Americans are celebrating because I don't believe everybody is outside having a picnic and having a barbecue and watching the fireworks go off. They could be doing that in, say, in Philadelphia or Boston or maybe New York. I don't know about the southern states, and I'm not trying to sound partisan, um, but after all, the South is still in that um, rebuilding process, and it's not until 1877 when Reconstruction ends that pretty much every southern state has been, I would say by 1876, most of the southern states have been officially admitted back into the Union. But it still is a trying time, nonetheless, to say the least. Also in 1876, which I think is important to note, is that it's the same, it's happens to be the same year, besides our 100th birthday as a nation, that a fellow man by the name of Alexander Graham Bell invents the telephone. So think about it, folks. You know, we're still a young country. I mean, this July, this 4th of July will be our 245th anniversary birthday. That seems like a long time, but in actuality, it's not. Uh, I would say that for being almost 245 years of age, we still have a long ways to go. But as for what Lighthouse, uh, as for what the Lighthouse Board did itself at 1876, the agency, um, 
began distributing books to those keepers whom were in desperate need of entertainment. You have to remember, folks, we don't have television yet. And, you know, when you are uh, manning a lighthouse in a very remote area, it's one thing to get lonely. It's another thing you could experience depression or, you know, some sadness. So what a great way to distribute books. These books could be not only about lighthouses, but on literature itself. Or just, you know, books that can um, provide useful information for people. Remember, for these people who are manning the lighthouses in the most remote areas, they don't have the luxury of being stationed in a nearby town or village that offers everyday amenities. So in other words, there's no Walgreens. There's no um, grocery store that we know today. So the bottom line is, is that you as an individual, or if your family is manning the lighthouse in a remote area, you have to come up with your own means of entertainment. You have to come up with a lot of ways to do things independently. While, yes, you could get help from the government, but, it, but at the same time, you know, you also have to do what's essential to be creative on your end. So, yes, I think it's very uh, nice that the Lighthouse Board did distribute books to those keepers whom were in desperate need of entertainment. Here's a good question that uh, probably didn't come to many of y'all's minds. It didn't uh, for me when I first read this book, but I was um, fortunate enough to have reminded myself about it. For starters, does anybody know what patronage means? I, I probably have mentioned it early on, but I'll be more than happy to mention it once again, because this is something that the Lighthouse Board had to contend with, and not just the Lighthouse Board, but every other governmental agency was guilty of participating in patronage. Given that patronage itself had become rampant, or I should say widespread through all, throughout all levels of government, the Lighthouse Board itself had dealt had was not immune from the problem, but did the board itself take on the issues within the department? Yes. For starters, patronage, for those of you who don't know what it is, what patronage means, I'm going to tell you right now. For starters, patronage is known as a practice of power where one or a select body or a select body of people control appointments to office, including privileges. So, basically, patronage revolves around personal connections. It's one thing to know someone. It's one thing to have connections. And while having connections in general is a great thing, sometimes having connections doesn't always mean that there's going to be uh, good results. Sometimes um, you get appointed to something. When someone appoints someone to a position, it doesn't mean that the person who's been appointed may always perform up to his standards. Well, when James Monroe appointed Stephen Pleasanton as um, the fifth auditor of the Lighthouse Board and then went on to become Lighthouse Superintendent in 1820, Stephen Pleasanton obviously was a brilliant man when it came to accounting skills, but as for knowledge with lighthouses... That was a disaster onto itself. And for a little over 30 years, our lighthouses 
suffered as a result of incompetent uh, management, thanks in large part to Stephen Pleasanton's uh, lack of um, lighthouse expertise. So that's an example right there of patronage where someone was appointed to a position, but yet he did not um, exemplify the proper knowledge when it came to lighthouse affairs. So in the early years of the lighthouse establishment, there were keepers whom were appointed based upon their personal connections, including the political party that the keeper himself supported. Think about this, folks. Um, from the uh, earlier podcast I had shared with you all, you know, the Democrats were not very big on uh, supporting public works projects that, say, involved um, building canals, most notably the Erie Canal. And then um, another canal that where the uh, members of Congress wanted the federal government to fund the canal. How about the Michigan-Illinois Canal? That canal was built after the Erie Canal. It turns out that the state of Illinois had to fund the canal fund the whole project without the federal government, all in the name because the Democrats were running Congress, and they weren't big on uh, the federal government uh, spending money on projects that did not benefit them. Not only did that pertain to canals, but how about lighthouses? It really wasn't until sometime just before the Civil War that some of the, the southern states, like Mississippi, Alabama, and Louisiana, and Texas, and even Florida. Florida would have had some lighthouses first, but the other southern states that I mentioned would have finally gotten their share of the pie in terms of lighthouses, but that was after Stephen uh, Pleasanton had been forced out. But there again, it all if you supported the right political party, in this case with, say, many people supporting the Democrats, and there were plenty of Democrats who liked Stephen Pleasanton because of his political philosophy with governmental spending, uh, that is, um, spending without uh, going over um, we, your fiscal boundaries, but spending money where it, sh it was supposed to have been spent and not spending it on projects that don't benefit one region of the country. So this patronage stuff is it's serious. It's not something that's beneficial. It's almost like playing partisan politics. So the board, how did the board itself go about modifying the problem of patronage? Well, the Lighthouse Board went about eliminating customs collectors. In other words, they eliminated customs collectors' rights to nominate keepers. And remember, the customs collectors were powerful. I mean, they were powerful men, but they were the ones that went that oversaw a majority of the lighthouse affairs uh, during Stephen Pleasanton's time. They were the ones that um, pretty much had the final say over uh, who would be um, authorized to build the lighthouse based on the um, bidding. And uh, of course, the customs collectors were the ones that collected um, all the. Um, duties when ships were arriving into port. But in, but after um, the Lighthouse Board had decided it was best to eliminate customs collectors, they decided to nominate keepers 
and instead transfer the power to the lighthouse inspectors. So how about that? So the lighthouse inspectors really were the ones who had the power to nominate the keepers rather than the customs collectors. In other words, the lighthouse inspectors worked within uh, the lighthouse board, so therefore they did, could not have any proper way of engaging in uh, patronage activities. Despite the Lighthouse Board's best efforts to eliminate patronage, what did President Grover Cleveland issue in 1896? He issued an, an executive order which included lighthouse keepers in the classified civil service. Now, I think we should all, this should make more sense to all of us. Um, you know, when George, real quick, when George Washington was president, there was no such thing as civil service exams. So it's fair to say that patronage itself probably dates as far back as to when uh, the republic itself was first established. I'll give you all a good example here of when civil service exams went about um, being first established. Um, I don't know if any of you all have read the book uh, written by Candace Millard, but I read the book four years ago. It was called uh, Destiny of the Republic, A Tale of Madness, Medicine, and the Murder of a President, which was about James Gar President James Garfield. Long story short, uh, he was shot by a deranged lunatic named Charles Guiteau, but Charles Guiteau was truly convinced that James Garfield was going to give him a... Um, political position in the administration. Well, President Garfield did not know who this man was, but we historians do know that Charles Guiteau kept visiting the White House on a daily basis, only to be turned away. Well, he stalked James Garfield. He, matter of fact, he followed Garfield to the train station and shot him from behind. I won't tell you too much, but the book itself does tell you a lot also about um, the medical profession's ignorance and how they treated the president. But the bottom line is, is that in the wake of the shooting, uh, two years after James Garfield's death, Congress passed the uh, Pendleton Act of 1883, which pretty much made it a mandatory requirement that for... Um, anyone wanting to work in the government that uh, they would be required to take a, a civil service exam. So the civil service system, as we know, was, uh, ish was instituted in the aftermath of uh, James Garfield's uh, death. Now, in order to um, become a lighthouse keeper, we learned early on from a previous podcast that you had to be between the age range of 18 to 50. But the qualifications are now changing, and I think it's all for the better. I truly do. Applicants now have to be qualified more so than before, which includes passing a written and oral exam, or let alone written and oral exams to get a job. However, the job itself doesn't become permanent until after completing a six-month probationary period. Merit. In other words... Merit meaning, like, what are your qualifications? How qualified are you for the job? Merit versus connections dictated all hiring and promotional decisions. You can have all the connections you want. On the other hand, having um, merit, in other words, having qualifications along with connections, 
can go hand in hand, but the connection piece of it alone, you know, you can know everybody there is in the government, but it doesn't mean that you're automatically qualified for the position that you're trying to apply for. After initially being established in 1852, how many years did the Lighthouse Board operate altogether? I'll give you a number. It's between 50 and 60. The answer is 58. The board itself operated from 1852 to 1910. So to think that when, this, when the board was first established, Millard Fillmore was president, and it stayed in existence up until a year after um, William Howard Taft became president. So the Lighthouse Board itself, folks, um, was established nine years before the Civil War broke out. The Lighthouse Board itself survived the Civil War. The Lighthouse Board um, managed to be efficient during the Reconstruction Era when the South was being readmitted back into the Union. The Lighthouse Board... Um, was there um, during the Spanish-American War. And, of course, that war itself helped uh, give the United States a, um, a, an even more stronger identity. How so? By becoming a world superpower. You know, think about it. For a long time, folks, even when our republic first started, we were not a superpower. We didn't even come anywhere close. We really might as well have been like a third-world nation but then we made our way to second-tier status. But it's not until the very, very end of the 19th century that we truly become a world superpower. So between um, 1852, well, rather I should say in 1852 when the Lighthouse Board was established, there were 325 lighthouses in America. But by the time the board itself would disband in 1910 there were roughly 800 lighthouses total so that means folks that there were about 475 more lighthouses built after 1852 that didn't mean that there weren't lighthouses especially lighthouses that were um, casualties during the civil war that um, in some instances some of those lighthouses were no longer deemed salvageable for repair. But nonetheless, it is amazing to think in 58 years that 475 more lighthouses were built to where in 1910 you have 800 total. And these lighthouses were all equipped with up-to-date illumination technology as well as being operated, or I should say manned, by professional competent keepers but when I say illuminated technology, how about those Fresnel lenses? I'll tell you, it's a, it, it's a good thing that the Lighthouse Board finally got established when it did. Had Stephen Pleasanton remained on any longer, I'm not sure who could have uh, stepped up. Not just one person, but a board itself. So, and, and to think that this board was established nine years before the Civil War broke out, and to be able to get America on the right track before a handful of southern, a handful of states, most notably the southern states, decided to secede, 
That was remarkable onto itself. The Lighthouse Board employed roughly 5,000 people, and 1,500 of them were lighthouse keepers. So I'm sure many of you all are wondering, well, why did the Lighthouse Board dismantle? Well, I'm going to get ready to tell you all that here um, in just a second. So here's the question for it, and eventually the answer. Despite all the success the Lighthouse Board had achieved, was conflict prevalent within the department's rank and file? Yes. Lighthouse inspectors and Navy, along with Navy, or rather Lighthouse inspectors and engineers, because <laughs> the Navy made up the Lighthouse inspectors and the Army made up the engineers, they often disputed with one another one another over whom was in charge of administrative decisions and projects. So while, yes, a lot of progress was made over time, there was more tension. And so by 1910, a different direction that uh, President Taft and Congress, they all agree that a different direction needs to be taken. In other words, there will be a lighthouse board, but it just won't be the same lighthouse board that we had known for almost 60 years. So, what replaced the lighthouse board? How about the Bureau of Lighthouses, or aka the Lighthouse Service? And in June of 1910, President Taft named a fellow man, and this was a a phenomenal choice. His name was George Rockwell Putnam, who would become the first commissioner of lighthouses. That's a very, very prestigious title, to say the least. Let's find out about who George Putnam is. He was born in 1865 in Davenport, Iowa, not far from the Mississippi River. Any of you all... Uh, in case any of you don't know where Davenport, Iowa is, I've, I've never been there before, but I, given that I work in uh, the trucking industry, I do get some uh, shipments either originating out of Davenport, Iowa, or going there. It's not far from the Iowa-Illinois line, if that gives you any um, indication. And obviously the Mississippi River, you know, just as a reminder, folks, I always thought years ago it started in Mississippi. It actually starts in Minnesota and makes its way down south. And it goes into depth. Part of the Mississippi River goes into uh, the uh, Davenport, Iowa, which is right on the Iowa-Illinois line. So as for Mr. Putnam, he started out working as a surveyor, studied law for a while, and he worked at a Chicago Railroad office. He earned a degree in engineering. He worked 20 years at the Coast and Geodetic Survey, which took him to places as far away as Greenland, Alaska, and ironically to the Philippines, where he met future President William Howard Taft. It turns out that Taft would become the Philippines, the Philippine Territory's first civil governor. And how did we establish um, jurisdiction in the Philippines? Well, that was a result of uh, the Spanish-American War in that Spain itself had um, had a lot of uh, what you call um, 
dominance in the Philippines and by uh, removing Spain from the uh, region, that's how we became um, involved. And President Taft was chosen by uh, Theodore Roosevelt uh, to be um, the, uh, well, I should say the civil governor of the territory there. But Putnam's leadership skills enabled Taft himself to appoint Putnam to the role, or I should say title, of First Commissioner of Lighthouses. So it truly is a match made in heaven right there in terms of uh, Putnam receiving this uh, position. How many years did Putnam himself serve in this position? I'll give you a number. It's between 20 and 30. How about 25? During Putnam's 25-year reign, new technologies emerged. If I had to pick one in particular that I could um, elaborate on, it's uh, radio beacons. Radio beacons were installed at lighthouses, which enabled mariners with radio compasses on their ships to obtain signals and determine their position in relation to lighthouses before its beam or fog signal could be heard. So all of this, this new technology gave mariners time to safely navigate their course of travel. So think about this. For In years past, mariners had to rely on cannons being shot off in the event of um, fog ahead or in the event of uh, getting close to the shore, in order to avoid getting close to the shoreline, where they could, um, uh, where they could have the danger of hitting a shoal from below or a reef, so with these um, radio beacons, basically ships out at sea can get enough um, information, or what we might even say intelligence to uh, be able to assess their situation where they're presently at and take the information before them to navigate their course of travel so that when they get to their destination, they will have enough time to be able to steer into the harbor in a safe manner. Then there's electrification works. How about artificial light benefiting all of society, most notably uh, Thomas Edison's invention of the um, light bulb, which yields artificial light. And then you've got automation. What I mean by automation is how about timers, which turn lights on and off based upon a preset schedule. Lighthouses running on their own independently. Now, while all that seems good, doesn't that impact lighthouse keepers who have been manning lighthouses for a period for periods of time it sure does so i'm sure many of you are thinking now is mr putnam looking after the people um because you know sometimes even our elected officials will say oh i'm for the people not the powerful and yet they do the opposite so now i'm sure we're going to wonder is mr putnam going to be doing the same thing or is he going to be different and actually look after the people let's find that out right now Given all technological strides made under Putnam's reign, did Mr. Putnam do everything possible within his power to ensure lighthouse keepers' jobs remained intact? 
The answer is yes. For starters, by avoiding any layoffs, Putnam himself went about transferring displaced keepers to other lighthouses with vacancies. Okay, that's a good 101 start there in terms of looking after the people who um, whom have uh, been making a lot of sacrifices, not just uh, turning the lighthouses on and off, but perhaps um, performing courageous acts, you know, by saving people's lives. And, and there will be a podcast session down the road here soon on um, heroic actions. How about, um, secondly, uh, Mr. Putnam valued the lighthouse keepers' work ethics, which led him to fight on their behalf, most notably regarding pensions. And what are pensions, folks? Payments that pertain to a person's uh, retirement. Now, when Mr. Putnam was in charge of the lighthouse service, the federal government had no retirement system plan in place. So, in other words, in 1910, folks, there's no such thing as Social Security. That won't come until um, the Great Depre- right after the Great Depression when uh, Franklin Roosevelt takes office. As a matter of fact, um, I, I want to say Social Security comes into play in the mid-1930s, just a few years after he FDR becomes president. So... But just keep in mind, folks, there's no such thing as uh, Social Security in 1910. Although I do know that um, some years after the Civil War had um, ended, Congress did um, enact uh, legislation that gave um, Civil War uh, veterans um, a form of a pension service. I don't know how long that um, even went into effect, but there there was an attempt. On the other hand, though, um, what George Putnam does goes beyond what um, Congress tried to do for Civil War soldiers after that war itself had ended. Putnam had to lobby Congress for eight years. Think about that, folks. Eight years is a long time. You know, as much as we want legislation passed overnight, it, it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes people have to lobby for well over two to three years to get Congress to to take action on a matter, to get Congress not just so much to take action, but just to bring the matter uh, for debate on the floor, regardless of whether it's in the House or the Senate. But George Putnam was relentless. He lobbied Congress for eight years regarding retirement plans for keepers, which drew the support from mariners and newspaper editors in coastal communities. Hey, you know, it's not just the mariners who are supporting this, but how about, you know, I think it's great that you've got newspaper editors along the coast who appreciate not just the lighthouse itself, but what the people themselves do. I mean, they're doing more than just turning the lighthouse on and off. I mean, they are doing a lot of things that many of us don't even think about. And when I'm on the air again next, I will talk, I'm going to, it might even be a two-part podcast series on uh, Lighthouse Keepers and their lives. And and I can promise you this much, folks, it will be very fascinating. 
what's important about the date of June 20th, 1918? Well, who's in office um, by around this time? A, a fellow president, he was actually the last president who was born in Virginia, named Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson signed legislation allowing lighthouse keepers to retire after 35 years of service at age 65 and receive their pension at the same time. It truly was the first retirement system developed in the U.S. for federal civil service employees. So think about that, folks. Uh, I'm sure most of you all probably didn't know that, but now you do. So if it weren't for George Putnam, there might not be a, um, there might not have been a retirement system put in play at this time. And so therefore, lighthouse keepers would have been left to fend for themselves. Putnam himself also became successful in getting Congress to provide disability benefits to keepers who were impacted by disease or injury, and in this case, injury on the job. Putnam also fought hard on proper pay for keepers. In 1918, the average um, sum of uh, money that a lighthouse keeper earned was $840. Now, I know that doesn't seem like a lot, but in 1918, that was a lot of money. We also have to remember that the cost of 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 uh, whether it was food or or just groceries in general back then, the cost of all that stuff pales in comparison to what we know today. So as my dad would say, everything's relevant to the time in which one lives. My grandparents can remember when you know a burger cost ten cents, but if you wanted a cheeseburger, that was five extra cents. It might not have sounded like much, but small amounts you know do add up. But then again, they were relevant to their time. But in years later, lighthouse keepers saw pay raises that went from anywhere from almost $1,100 to $2,100. So we have George Putnam to thank for lobbying because if it weren't for him, I'm not sure who would have been willing to lobby on behalf of the little guys because after all, the lighthouse keepers really are the little guys. They are out there making as many important sacrifices as the mariners are whom are coming in with goods as well as leaving out of the harbor with goods. What's important about 1935? Well, in 1935, that's the year that Mr. Putnam retires. His 25-year reign was heralded by numerous achievements ranging from the number of navigational aids more than doubling to new lighthouses being built. And then there was a, I think this one's really worth pointing out, how about a decline per ships lost in maritime accidents, which helped the United States go from being the sixth safest to the second safest nation in the world, trailing the Dutch. And to make things even better, under George Putnam's reign, lighthouse keepers had very, very high morale. In other words, they felt good about what they were doing. They weren't being treated like dirt. They were valued for their service. 
and a lot of it has to do with Mr. Putnam. I mean, the Lighthouse Board, I know, valued its the employees. But there again, Congress, along with President Taft, was smart enough, they were smart enough to see where the friction had been brewing between the Lighthouse inspect, inspectors and the engineers to where, hey, if they're not being able to get along well or see eye to eye on many of the issues confronting the board, then it's time for a new direction. So it takes the right leaders and the right kind of um, leadership at the right time to make the necessary changes. I think today's Congress could learn could learn some good lessons from Congresses of years past. Even though Congresses of years past may not have been perfect, it is fair to say that they did learn how to disagree without being disagreeable. I think our uh, politicians need that lesson more than ever. The only problem is that um, would, would they be willing to... Um, get that through their head to where they could put aside their um, I, me, myself attitude. I don't know. I'm not one of them, and maybe that's okay. But on the other hand, um, as my father once said, you know, Kirk, uh, we can't legislate stupidity. The only thing we can do is do everything there is in our power to avoid being like those whom choose to act ignorant. Who replaces uh, George Putnam? A fellow man by the name of Harold King. Harold King was an engineer with uh, 24 years of experience in the lighthouse service. He replaced Mr. Putnam, and it turns out that both men knew one another well since their days working for the Coast and Geodetic Survey in the Philippines. So this was a good um, match to where um, Mr. Putnam obviously... You know, yes, he's going to be well, he's going to be greatly missed, but at least he knows that the person taking over for him is going to do a good job. Sometimes even that doesn't always work out for the better. When someone, you know, given that someone has worked in a position for 25 years, you would think that the next person taking over would do a good job. In some instances, that's not always been the case, but in this case, luck is on uh, Mr. Putnam's side. But four years later, something changes. We go to 1939. What happens in the year 1939? Well, it'll be two years before we get into uh, World War uh, II when, um, when we are forced by um, no other means of entering, officially entering the war because of uh, being attacked at Pearl Harbor. But in 1939... What happens involving lighthouses is the following. The lighthouse service was moved to the U.S. Coast Guard, which brought about the modern-day era of lighthouse history. And even today, folks, the Coast Guard still uh, oversees uh, lighthouses. From 1852 to 1939, America's lighthouses, or I should say brilliant beacons, expanded to new heights. But yet, during this time, they also survived the darkest of times, like war. And in the aftermath of war, these lighthouses, became, or I should say brilliant beacons, became stronger through people manning them to inventing new, safer technologies guiding mariners through perilous journeys 
where a light's beacon made all the difference. Some of you are probably some of you probably thought to yourselves just a second ago, was this like a farewell to what we've been discussing? On one hand, it does sound like it, but we still have a lot more to discuss. And when I'm back on the air again next, we're going to learn more about Lighthouse Keepers, not just the role they played, but how about their lives? I think that's well worth noting because after all, as I've said earlier, they did more than just turn the lights on and off. The families, they had stories to tell of their own. They're making sacrifices day in and day out. I think it might be worth knowing what um, what kind of things they took on day in and day out. After all, the lighthouse keepers and their families, they probably didn't have any two days that were alike. They... Um, they, like I said a moment ago, they have a story to tell that I do believe would be worth sharing with you all, my fellow listeners. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, and I look forward to being back on the air again with you all. As always, thank you for listening. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate your all support. It means a great deal. You know, we live in a world where a lot of history has come under scrutiny, and Yes, I know history is not always pretty. Yes, history has got a lot of dark sides to it. On the other hand, history does have a lot of positivity. It's what you choose to um, value about history that uh, makes history all the worth learning and uh, respectable. You know, yes, we can't change our past, we can learn from it, and we can we can do everything there is in our power to not make the same mistakes that happened from years past. So that, that's one of the reasons why I'm on here, folks. It's not so much because I enjoy history. I enjoy sharing the history that I've learned with you all, my listeners, who probably did not know stuff before until you all have been listening to me now. So thank you again for letting me share these stories, and I look forward to many more of them, and I also look forward to being back on the air again next when we discuss another topic involving brilliant beacons, and that is with the Lighthouse Keepers and their lives. Have a good evening, and have a great Easter holiday, and wherever you all are, please stay safe.